morning, Southbridge. Excited to be here today? All right, good. Praise the Lord. I'm glad that you're here. If you're with us in Theater 14 as well, I just want to say good morning. If you are a guest with us today, welcome. And uh, we are grateful for you, and uh, we make a lot of provisions to make sure that we take care of you when you come. And the one thing we ask you to do, if you wouldn't mind, if you, wouldn't, if you would fill out in your worship program, there's a little card. We call it the connection card. It's attached to your worship program. Just some time during the message or before you leave today, if you would just put your name on there and just tell us how it is you heard about us as a church and take it out to the first-time guest kiosk on your way out the front door today, then we would love to give you another gift. Hopefully you've already gotten a popcorn box, and we have another gift for you today. And we also want to make a donation to a ministry that rescues people out of human trafficking. And so if you turn that card in, we make a donation to that ministry today on behalf of the card that you turned in. And as well, if you're newer to Southbridge, next week, sign up for the Discovering Southbridge Lunch if you want to learn more about this church. You can attend for months and months and months to try and answer a bunch of your questions, or you can come to this lunch and myself, some of our elders will be there to try and answer some questions that you may have and help you learn things about our church a little bit faster. But you've got to sign up for the Connections booth on your way out for Discovering Lunch. And if you need child care, we'll take care of that as well. And we're going to continue in our series, Galatians, today. Let me just pray for us, and we'll open up God's Word. Let me pray. Father God, we are grateful that you allow us to approach your throne of grace. And as we come into your presence, God, will you make your presence known in this place? Will you please, God, show us your glory, show us yourself through your Word. Convict our hearts, transform our lives. God, as I speak, will you please allow your Spirit to flow through my lips into our lives? Fill us with your Spirit. Don't let us quench your spirit today. Don't let us be distracted by other things, whatever might come into our mind. Will you put a shield of protection around this place so the enemy cannot invade? And God, will you just give us a time of reflection on your scripture in our lives? And will you allow us to not be the same as a result of this time that we spend with you right now? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, some of you I've shared with before that I really, really enjoy the news and enjoy the news headlines. And sometimes it just helps me see what's going on around the world. And there is a lot of stuff going on around the world. Sometimes I look at it, though, and I think to myself, are you kidding? Like, that really happened? Can you believe some of the things? And, I, and there's all kinds of big tragedies and things like that. But I'm talking about, like, some ridiculous things that happen around our world. Do you ever watch a, a headline? Maybe you watch CNN or Fox, and it's scrolling along the bottom, and you see something, and you think, somebody actually did that? Or maybe you get online, and you see stuff, and you think, people do some dumb stuff. Like, I'm not saying we're dumb people. We just do dumb stuff sometimes, don't we? You can get online and find out a lot of times it's criminals that do silly things. If you just type in foolish criminals, dumb criminals, whatever, ridiculous crimes, you'll see millions and millions of hits that will come up on Google. And I did some of that this week, just seeing some of the foolish things that people do. And I was amazed. Of course, it's foolish to commit a crime in the first place. But a lot of times it seems like these guys would get away with this stuff if they didn't do such foolish things. Like there's this one guy that I read about. And actually broke into a house, stole some expensive jewelry, and the article just said it was two pieces of jewelry. I don't know what it was. And I got the idea from reading the article. He would have gotten away with it, except while he was at the house, he logged into his Facebook account and left, and left himself logged in. So a couple of things. One, I was like, are you not in the market for a computer? You know, he left it there. But two, what is he thinking to himself as he's going through this house? Oh, this is a great bracelet. This is a nice watch. You know, puts it in his pocket. I'm robbing a house. I wonder what my friends are doing. You know, he gets a, what are you doing? Like, just how foolish of someone to do something like that. Or there's another story that I read of someone that can make us proud. He was a native North Carolinian, and he was trying to do the counterfeit business. Now, I, I don't want to try and help you if you're trying to do the counterfeit business, but just for information, the largest bill in circulation in U.S. currency is the $100 bill. This guy went to Walmart and tried to make a purchase of about $500 worth of stuff, vacuum cleaner, different stuff, with a $1 million bill. 
I, I don't know what the cashier must have been thinking. Like, did she, did he or she think to themselves, you know, did this guy pull this out of a cereal box? Like, what is this? He, she started to question him about it. And what ended up happening is he got irate that this was a real bill. <laughs> I, I don't know what he was thinking. Did he think that she had over $900,000 in change in her cash register? <laughs> or the store even had that much money? You know, that'll be 999000 whatever, however much money that was there. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm out of dime, sir. You know, what, what do you say at that moment? How foolish. Uh, there was one person that, that went to apply for welfare in Virginia, pulled up the social services department in a Hummer. <laughs> the police thought this was an interesting sight, so they ran the plates on this H2. It was stolen. <laughs> nice job, buddy. You know, it's such an odd sight for someone. The, the, the worst story that I read, though, was of a guy who was in Florida. He was getting released from prison, and in the prison parking lot must have realized, I don't have a ride home. So he carjacked a woman in the prison parking lot. <laughs> gets her car, and then realizes he doesn't know how to drive stick. And he's stuck in the parking lot, so he gets rearrested by the police and just said, I didn't want to walk. What a fool. But it's easy to look at other people and see the foolish things that they do and think, how ridiculous. I would never do anything like that. But don't we all do foolish things from time to time? And maybe you haven't done it with a crime or gotten arrested and it hasn't made headlines, but think through your lives. Haven't we all done foolish things before? By the nature of what I do for a living and in this body of uh, community of believers that we come together called Southbridge, I share with you a lot of times when I do dumb stuff. And I've shared with you throughout this time of our church of different dumb things I've done. Anytime there's gasoline involved, foolish, that just shouldn't be doing it, and fire, and usually they come together, not good, so you've already learned something today, don't do that. Or there was a time I remember in college, we've all done dumb things in college, right? If you went to college, little pranks or whatever it was. I told you about a time when I was going to college in Ohio and decided to, to swim across a lake in the middle of November, right after eating a big meal. <laughs> Wait 30 minutes, okay? That's just a general proverb for you. Didn't go well. Foolish stuff that I've done. I don't know if I ever told you, but one time I grabbed one of my mom's hairpins when I was a little kid. I was down in the basement of my house. I stuck it in an outlet. <laughs> Explains all the other dumb things I've done in my life. <laughs> but we all do foolish stuff from time to time. Think about the foolish things that you've done in your life. Have you ever said something at just the wrong time or to the wrong person? Or maybe you've made a foolish investment. Or just used your money in a foolish way. Or maybe in a relationship, you got into a relationship, it was foolish to even be in that relationship. Or maybe something that happened within that relationship was foolish. And I want to speak today specifically to those of you who've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I know there are some of you here or that will hear these words that have yet to place your faith in Jesus Christ. You can do that today. And I'll give you the opportunity to do that today. But those of you who've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I want to ask you this question. What's the most foolish thing that you could possibly do in following Jesus Christ? What is the single, number one, most dangerous, most foolish thing that you could do in following Jesus Christ? And today we're going to talk about the foolish things that we attempt or try in following Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 3. And I invite you to turn with me. Galatians chapter 3. We'll start reading in verse 1. We've been in the book of Galatians over the last few weeks. We're in chapter 1, first week, chapter 2, second week. Now we're in Galatians chapter 3 in this third week of the series. And I shared with you that the book of Galatians isn't really a book. It's actually a letter that's written by a guy named Paul. Paul's a guy who plants churches. His life's been radically transformed by Jesus Christ. And so he goes around and he shares the love of Jesus with other people. And he's writing to a, a group of churches that he helped start in this province of the world, this region of the world called Galatia. And this is a letter that would be circulated, it would be shared with each one of these churches, these people that Paul loves dearly. 
And he wants what's best for them. And he loved them so much that he told the most important news he could possibly tell them, that God was offering them a gift. And that was by grace, grace alone. And the way they received the gift, it was a gift from God. It was the gift of eternal life. It was the gift of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for their sins so they could come into a saving relationship with him. It's the gift that anyone can have today. And the way they received that gift is through faith alone and Jesus Christ alone. So it's a gift of grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus Christ alone. But now they're doing the dumbest thing they could possibly do. They're trying to live this life on their own. And none of us would do that, would we? Try to live the Christian life on our own strength. It's the most foolish thing they could possibly do. And in a sense, it makes Paul's blood boil, but at the same time, it breaks his heart for these people that he loves so dearly. Look what he says in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. And verse 2, I'd like to learn just one thing from you. If I learn just this one thing that will answer all the other questions, I just, I just want to learn this one thing. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? Verse 3, after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort, or some translations may say the flesh? Verse 4, have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law, or because you believe what you heard? And here he is, he's speaking to these people that he loves so much, and he calls them twice, fools, you foolish Galatians, are you so foolish? In verse 3, he says, you began with the Spirit, but now you're trying to do this by human effort. That word for human effort is the flesh. He's saying, you started off following God, but now you're following the flesh, and fools are the ones that follow the flesh. And that's our first point today. Fools follow the flesh. It's the foolish person that does what's right in their own eyes. It's the foolish person that follows their flesh. The word flesh I get from the last word in verse 3. In the NIV, they translated it human effort. It's just a Greek word, and the Greek word is sarks. It's a simple word. It's actually used all throughout Scripture, and it's used in a lot of different ways. Sometimes when it's used in the Scripture, it's actually just talking about our body. And when you hear the word flesh, you may naturally just think, you know, the skin that's on our bones. The flesh that we're talking about here is not that. That's not what it's talking about in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 3. You look at the context. What it's talking about is living by unregenerate human nature. It's, by doing, it's doing what seems right to us. It's doing what comes natural to us. And he's saying to them, did you start with the supernatural, and now you're living in the natural? Now you're living by the flesh? This flesh that can only be changed by the Spirit of God? And see, when we think of flesh, we think, well, I can change the flesh. Sit-ups, push-ups, some facial cream, go to Planet Beach Tan. We can tan it up and do all kinds of stuff to it. The kind of flesh that we're talking about, you cannot tan it and change it. We're talking about the internal nature that we have. The old, unregenerate nature. This nature that tells us to do what we think is the right thing to do naturally and when Paul's saying, you're going to live a supernatural life by doing what comes natural, how foolish is that? Proverbs tells us the same thing in Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 26. He who trusts in himself is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom is kept safe. Essentially what Paul's saying when he starts this passage in Galatians chapter 3. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And it seems kind of harsh, doesn't it, for people that he loves? If you think this is harsh, let me share with you a paraphrase that I came across this week in my reading. It's the Phillips translation by J.B. Phillips. Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia, who saw Jesus Christ the crucified so plainly, who has been casting a spell over you? 
Surely you can't be so idiotic as to think that a man begins his spiritual life in the spirit and then completes it by reverting to outward observances. You can't be so idiotic, you idiots. (laughs) How is that a loving statement? And here's Paul who, when we get to chapter six and verse one, we're going to see, he says, if someone's in sin, restore them gently. Really? Does he contradict himself here? Paul's the guy who writes about in first Corinthians what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. The fruit of the spirit is kindness and self-control. Is Paul contradicting himself by calling these people fools? Not at all. This is tough love. And what Paul's doing here is he's trying to get the attention of these Galatians. Remember, he's already written two chapters in this letter. He's already told them, hey, there was a gospel that you're believing, and it's a false gospel. It's no gospel at all. It's actually bad news. And he's been trying to plead with them. And now he says, listen, you fools. He's trying to grab their attention. Have you ever tried to get someone's attention and they don't seem to be paying any attention to you? Uh, Does anyone have teenagers? (laughs) I asked that because I saw a commercial this week, and I was watching it from the other room. I didn't even know what they were selling. It was on mute, and I just saw this commercial was taking place where there was this mom. And she had a teenage son, and she came into his room to try and wake him up in the morning or at noon or whatever time she's trying to wake him up. I don't know. She walks into the room. She tries to wake him up. He doesn't wake up. She pulls his covers off of him. He doesn't wake up. She goes over and opens the blinds, and the sun comes glaring on to like right where his head's at. He doesn't wake up. So finally, after all the stuff she tries, she goes over to a drum set that's sitting in his room, and she grabs a drumstick, and she whacks the cymbal. You know, he sits right up in his bed. And that's what essentially Paul is doing here is he's hitting the cymbal. He's tried through chapter one. He's tried through chapter two to get their attention. Now he says, you fools. Like, I love you so much, but what you're doing doesn't make any sense. And he's not actually attacking their intelligence. The word that Paul uses here for fools is not one that would be talking about their IQ. He's talking about their lack of spiritual discernment. In fact, it's the word that Jesus Christ himself actually uses. There's a story at the end of the Gospel of Luke where there's two disciples after Jesus has died and all these things have taken place. They're walking along this road. It's the road to Emmaus. And they're talking about all the events that have transpired. And then Jesus comes up to them. But he withholds his identity from them. They can't figure out who he is, which is great irony considering what he's about to say to them. And they start telling him about all the events that have taken place the last couple days. How patient of Jesus to listen to that, by the way. And then when they're done talking about all of that, in Luke chapter 24, verse 25, Jesus says this. He said to them, how foolish you are. And here's what it really means. And how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. It's not that they're not smart enough to read all the stuff that was written in the prophets. It's not that they're not smart enough to realize these things are going to come to fruition, but they lack the spiritual discernment to realize that what they had just seen before their very eyes are the very things that the scripture predicted would take place. And so Jesus calls them, you fools, you lack spiritual discernment. How slow of heart that you're not getting this. And Paul's saying to these very same people, or to these people, this very same word, you fools, you lack spiritual discernment. How do you not see something that's basically logical? You could begin in the spirit and then think that you could live this life by the flesh. Fools follow the flesh. Who has bewitched you? He asks. That word bewitched is an interesting word as well. It only occurs here in the whole New Testament. All the words that are used in John, or Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the book of Revelation, all that stuff. The only time that it's used is right here. The word bewitched carries the idea of being enchanted. It's kind of got a magical feel to it. But Paul's not thinking here that they literally are under some magical spell. The definition of this word is to be fascinated to the point of being spellbound. 
to be so engulfed in somebody, so embraced by somebody, it pulls you in. Have you ever seen somebody before that's watching a movie and they're so into the movie, like they're jumping and emotions are going with it or so into a video game or somebody asked me after the first service, you ever just get caught in a stare? You're just kind of, it's like just being there. And it's that idea that you're so fascinated by something that you're almost spellbound by it. We have at our house right now a seven-month-old little baby. We call her Gracie. It's the name that we've given her. She lives a wonderful life, let me tell you. Every need you could ever imagine, people are right there to meet that need. And seven months old, she basically sleeps all the time. And then we give her food and she eats. And then we dote over her for a little while until that wears around. And she gets so much love that she falls back asleep. And it's pretty much her life story. But everything with a baby is new. Have you ever seen a baby before come across new things and how fascinated they can be by those things? Right now, she's so fascinated, not by toys or shiny stuff or things that her sis- their sisters will do for her. But if we just set her down on her bed, she's so fascinated by her hand. She just starts looking at that hand. And it's almost like she's spellbound by her own hand. It's just, wow. I wonder what goes through her mind. It's just, just like this nub up here, and there's these things on it. And wow, and I wonder what it tastes like. It's just, that's how it always ends. It's always about sticking it in their mouth as babies. But she's almost spellbound by this thing. It fascinates her. And you think about us. What fascinates us? As you get into adolescence, certain things fascinate you. And as you become teenager and adult and all these different ages and stages, different things fascinate us. What fascinates you? You think about our culture and all the things that fascinate us. Think about how fascinated we are by sex. We're obsessed with it. That's why it's used to sell so many products and so many things that aren't even affiliated with it. We just, it's like it grabs our attention and it almost holds a spellbound. Not literally magic spellovers, but we're, we're pulled into it. And it grabs us. Or stuff. We've got so much stuff. Think about all the stuff in our culture. It doesn't matter what your thing is, whether it's clothes or whether it's cars or whether it's tech stuff. You know, you get the iPad 1, and then they come out the iPad 2, and then they come out the iPad 2G, and then the iPad 2G XYZ, and then you get all these things, and it's just like there's the gold version, then the platinum version, and then it's just shiny more and more stuff. And, and you can be so like into these things, and just for whatever reason, you're, you're going after this stuff, it can fascinate us. Or sports can fascinate us, or entertainment can fascinate us. Think about how many hours the average American spends watching television. What did people do 100 years ago with all that extra time? We're so fascinated by being entertained. We're so fascinated with money. That's why it consumes so much of us going after it. And There's all these things that are out there in our culture, and I could just keep going on about all this stuff that's out there that fascinates us. What do all those things have in common? No matter how long the list is that I make for our culture, all the things that fascinate us have is one thing in common. Us. They all revolve around us. If it's sex, it's this feeling that I want to have. It's this pleasure that I maybe deserve, you may even say to yourself. And so it's, I want this, and so then I do what I want. I follow the flesh. I do what seems right to me, like a fool. Or money, and we go after money. We've got more money in our culture than anyone's ever had in human history but we always need more. And then we're fearful in retirement that we might not have enough. How foolish. It's fascinated us. Or, or there's the shiny stuff. There's always new stuff. So no matter what stuff you get, there's going to be a new stuff. But it's because we want it for our convenience, for our comfort, for our lives, to keep a status, whatever reason, but it revolves around us. There are all these different things that are out there. The entertainment, well, I deserve it. This is how I rest. This is what I do. It's all about me. So who has bewitched you? We could easily blame it on Satan. He's the father of lies. 
We could blame it on our culture because there's so many options out there. But who's responsible for this? It's us. James says it this way in James chapter 1. It says, each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, what seems right to us, he's dragged away and enticed. And here's where it leads. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death, that's separation from God. And we've all lived that before because we've all sinned. In fact, we all share in common one common story that we've all tried to do our own thing from time to time. But I'm speaking to believers today. To those of you who've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, because that's who Paul's talking to when he's writing to this Galatian church. And so what is it exactly that's happened in our lives? Well, think about it. Each one of us has a different story, and we've seen different people this year share their stories. The grace curtain's out there. You can hear different people's stories, different stories of how we've come to Jesus. Some of you, it was when you were five years old. Some of you, it was when you were 10 years old. Some of you, it was when you were 20 years old. Some of you, it was when you were 40, 70, 80, however old, somewhere between 80 and one, you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. And we all have different stories. Like mine, I was 18 years old. I I came to the place where I felt like life was empty. And then someone introduced me to Jesus Christ. Told me about Jesus and how Jesus came to this earth and died for my sins. Then rose again and is offering me life. If I'd place my faith in Jesus, I could have that life. And I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. For some of you, you were young. Maybe you were five years old when you trusted Jesus. And so you probably didn't live a long life of trying to do your own thing. But then probably what happened is that you spent some period of your time, some period of your life, spending time doing your own thing. And then you committed to Jesus when you really understood what was happening. And then some of you, maybe you had a tragedy in your life and you realized you were without hope and without God. And so you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior to invite God into your life. Or some of you had been doing things and everything went well and everything went right. And that does happen for some people even, but you still felt empty inside. And so you came to the place where you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And so you trusted Jesus. What an amazing day. Whatever your story. Luke chapter 15 tells us in verse 7 and verse 10 that all of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents, comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Awesome. That day. Let me ask you this. What happens the next day? What happens the day after you trust Jesus? Now you've got to figure out how to follow Jesus. And what many of us do is that it's a work of the Spirit that we even realize that we need Jesus. And it's a work of the Spirit that would bring us into a relationship with Jesus. But what happens for many of us is the day after we trust Jesus, now we've got to figure out how to follow Jesus, and we do what comes natural to us. We do what seems right to us. It's what the Bible would call following the flesh. We do what's foolish and trying to live out the Christian life. And maybe it's because someone taught us this is how you're supposed to do it. Maybe it's just because it's something we just came up with. Or we watched other people and we came to this conclusion. But there are all these foolish ways that we try to follow Jesus that seem right to us. In my office this week, I came up with a list of a few of them. Foolish ways that we try to follow Jesus. And some of you, as you listen to this, you'll probably come up with even some more. Maybe ones that you do or you've seen other people do. But one of the ways that I've seen people do this before is they go into do more Christianity. Have you ever seen Do More Christianity before? If you're a workaholic or perfectionist, a lot of times this is a natural one for you to get into is Do More Christianity, and it can be Do More of a lot of different things. And what happens is you start to watch other Christians, and you think, well, they pray a lot, and I don't pray that much, so I need to pray more. So I'll do more of that, and then maybe I'll be closer with Jesus. Or they study their Bible a lot, and so maybe that works for them. They seem to be really good Christians, so I'll study my Bible more. It's good stuff, or I'll serve more, or I'll learn more, or I'll go to more of these things. I'll do this, all this stuff, and I do more stuff 
because what I'm doing doesn't seem to be working, so I'll just do more of it, and eventually it will work. <laughs> it's called insanity, if you've never heard that definition before. Continuing to do the same thing and expecting different results. A lot of people live life that way. And I'll tell you, if there's one of these false Christianities that I naturally go to, it's this one. That I would just do more stuff because I like to be a doer and so I want to do the word. And you can even put verses on it, be a doer of the word. But we just start doing more and more stuff to try and get closer to Jesus because that seems right to us. Another one maybe you've seen before is osmosis Christianity. Have you ever seen osmosis Christianity before? It's where people think if I'm around enough good stuff, something good's bound to happen. And so these are the kind of people that if you watch them, they go to every religious event you can imagine. They're here today, okay? So there's somebody here today that's an osmosis Christian. And they'll be at community group tonight, and I'll go to community group tonight. So I'm not saying it's bad, but then they'll be at whatever else we offer and whatever else other churches offer. They'll be at every Bible study this week that's available in Raleigh, and they'll be at the prayer meetings that are out there, and they'll be at uh, all the Bible studies, and they'll be at radio show events and outreaches and service projects and all the different things that are available. And maybe they'll even leave here today and go to multiple church services. It's osmosis Christians. And continually taking in more and more of Christianity. Do you know what happens with osmosis Christians? Take it out of the spiritual world and put it in the physical. It's like this. If you woke up in the morning and you ate breakfast at an all-you-can-eat buffet, and then you had a snack before lunch, and then you went to lunch at an all-you-can-eat buffet, and then you ate a snack before dinner, and then you went to dinner and you ate at an all-you-can-eat buffet, and you know what happens? It's all probably good food, but you're just getting fat. And that's what happens with osmosis Christians. You're just taking it in and taking it in and taking it in. And whoever said that was Christianity? But it seems right to us if you're just around enough good stuff. Or there's another group, and these people, it's usually because of their temperament and just their personality. It's the Pharisaic Christians. Pharisaic Christians will come to Jesus, and they've got some natural abilities or some temperaments that, that make them good at certain parts of the Christian life, maybe certain spiritual disciplines. And they've got blind spots, and they've got weaknesses, but they don't ever talk about that stuff. What they elevate to be the most important things are the things that they're really good at, and they judge everyone else's spirituality based on what they're really good at. It leads to an elitism of Christianity. It's a false Christianity. Or there's consumer Christians. This is probably the broadest spectrum of people, and to some degree, all of us are consumer Christians. And we take things to meet our needs, but in the extreme case, a consumer Christian thinks that all of Christianity is to meet their needs, to make their family better, to make their finances better, to make their relationships with their friends better. And they expect everyone to meet their needs. And so they come to a church, and they, if it doesn't meet their needs, then they leave. And so oftentimes what you'll find is a consumer Christian is someone you'll meet, and say in the last five years of their Christianity, they've been a part of about five different churches. Because they go long enough until something happens that they don't, do, they don't agree with. And you won't agree with everything. And so as soon as they don't agree with something, they leave. Or as soon as they're not getting their needs met, they leave. As soon as something doesn't go their way, they leave. Or they can just disregard the things that are taught about Christianity that they don't like. Things like, take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. That's so extreme. I just want to have a good family and be a good father and take care of this and have good biblical finances and do, and do all these things. It's consumer Christianity. Can I ask a question? Who has bewitched us? Whatever category you fall into. Do more Christianity, osmosis Christianity, Pharisaic Christianity, consumer Christianity, prosperity Christianity, health Christianity. There are a bunch that I haven't listed. We could just keep going. Who's bewitched us into thinking that this false gospel is any kind of gospel at all? And is that why Jesus Christ was crucified? You foolish Raleighites, you foolish Durhamites, or wherever you live in the triangle, 
How could we be so foolish as to think that we could take Christianity, baptize it with our culture, and that's Christianity? Here's the deal. That's not why Jesus was crucified. You look at the passage, verse 1. Wasn't Jesus so clearly portrayed as crucified before you? Paul says, Christ crucified is so central in his life. He knows that was the message that he preached to the Galatians. He says to the Corinthians, that it's foolishness to them to preach Christ and Christ crucified. But he still preached him in verse two, or chapter 2 and verse 2. He says, I resolved to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. In chapter 9 and verse 16, he says, I was compelled to preach the gospel. And you know what the gospel is? It's Jesus Christ and Christ crucified. You know what was happening in Galatia? They were blending culture into their Christianity. It was Jewish culture. That's why the false teachers were called Judaizers. It's because they were saying, that stuff Paul preached, grace alone, faith alone, Jesus Christ alone, that's great for starting a relationship with Jesus. But let me tell you how you really grow. Let me tell you, if you want to experience the fullness, you need to be circumcised and obey these rules. Not all the rules, just the ones we think are really important. But you'll obey these rules. Then you'll be a really good Christian. And Paul's saying, is that why Jesus was crucified? Wasn't Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ crucified portrayed to you, made so clear, publicly portrayed to you as crucified? Why was Jesus crucified? And what has he said already in the book of Galatians? In Galatians chapter 1 and verse 4, he says that Jesus Christ was crucified to rescue us. From what? This culture. That's why he says what he says in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Don't be conformed to this world, shaped into its image but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How, is, how does that happen? It's the power of the Spirit and the Word of God come together and do a work in your mind. He comes to rescue you from this evil age, he says in Galatians. What else does he say? He says in chapter 2, remember he's been writing to them for a while now, in chapter 2 and verse 16, he says that he, Jesus was crucified so that we could be justified. To be justified means this, declared righteous. And what happens in justification is that he who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, became sin on the cross when he was crucified so that we could become the righteousness of God. That's why Jesus was crucified. And why else is Jesus crucified? Remember what he said last week about our own lives. When Paul was talking about his own testimony in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified. Not a work that he did, it was passive. So when Jesus died on the cross, I have been crucified with Christ then he talks about the life he lives in the body here. Therefore, it's not the life that I live now. It's a life not by the flesh. It's a life by faith. It's not doing what seems right to me. It's a life trusting in the promises of God. You see, fools follow the flesh. So you follow in the flesh? You live in this Christian life in your own strength, doing what seems right to you? Because fools do that. And I'm not attacking your IQ. And I'm in the group with you. But what are we thinking? Because the faithful walk by the Spirit. And that's our second point. The faithful walk by the Spirit. And Paul starts to talk about that. It's the very thing he says in verse 2. It's the first time in the book of Galatians that the word spirit's even mentioned is in chapter 3 in verse 2. He says, I'd like to learn just one thing from you. If we just wrap this one thing up, all the other questions go away, false teaching goes away, it totally transforms your spiritual life. Just this one thing. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law? <laughs> of course you didn't. This is a rhetorical question. <laughs> or by believing what you heard. Are you so foolish? Or as J.B. Phillips would say, how could you be so idiotic? After, and this is your own experience he's appealing to, after beginning with the Spirit, and each one of us begins with the Spirit, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you receive the Spirit of God. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 makes that incredibly clear. Romans chapter 8, we'll look at in a couple of minutes, makes that incredibly clear. Paul says it right here. You begin with the Spirit. The Spirit's not something that's reserved just for varsity Christians. Everybody who knows Jesus Christ as their Savior, you place your faith alone in Jesus Christ alone has the Spirit indwelling your life. That doesn't mean that everybody lives by the Spirit. If everybody lived by the Spirit, Paul wouldn't have to write these words to the Galatians. So after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Why would you decide to change? If you start one way, why would you think you'd continue by going back to the old way? Maybe someone taught you that. Maybe it just seemed right to you. Human effort, the flesh. Verse 4, have you suffered so much for nothing? Had so many experiences for nothing? If it really was for nothing, maybe it wasn't. Verse 5, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Why do you see the spirit working among you? And how do you see the spirit working among you, I ask? You go back to the verse, and it says in the verse, you see the Spirit working among you because you see miracles. What are miracles? Well, miracles are feeding the 5,000. Miracles are walking on water. Miracles are parting the Red Sea. And those are kind of, we know that. What else are miracles? It's whenever God does something that we could never do by our own manipulation, with our own works, with trying to work something, you know, whatever it is we try to do. It's whenever God does something like change a life. What do you think the Galatians have seen? He just referred to the one miracle that's probably the most obvious miracle is when God saves a soul, when he brings someone into the kingdom. And we see that happen here at Southbridge all the time. Just last week, we heard a guy named Gino share his story about how he grew up in church. But he learned how to do church, and he learned how to assimilate into church. But he didn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he realized, even though he was a good church guy and a pretty moral person, that he needed a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of God worked in his life in such a way to show him his sin and his need for Jesus Christ as Savior. And he bowed his knee to Jesus Christ as his Savior. That's a miracle. That's why Luke chapter 15 says that all of heaven rejoices over it. It's because God's doing a miracle by saving a sinner, which is the very thing that he's done in so many of our lives and he can do in your life today. He may save some here today. We may see a very miracle here today. And then we see God transform people. We see God heal people, which is a miracle. We had a guy share a testimony a couple weeks ago that had a reading disability. And through reading the scriptures, God healed him of his reading disability. That's a miracle. But the greatest miracle in his story was the fact that God forgave him of sin that he didn't think he could ever be forgiven of. It makes me think of the story of the man who's dropped through the, the roof when Jesus is preaching. And Jesus starts off, the first miracle he does is he says, I forgive your sins. And then all the religious people get real uptight. Because they're thinking to themselves, who's this man that says he can forgive sins? And then to show them that he has power and authority, he says, get up, take up your mat and walk. And he allows the man to walk out of there because he was unable to walk before. But the miracle was the forgiveness. It's doing what only God can do. Just transform a heart. And then we see people trusting God in the midst of tragedy. We've got people going through incredibly difficult circumstances, but they believe the promises of God, that God actually does work all things together for the good of those who love him and were called according to his purpose. What a great testimony of trusting God and a work of the Spirit in someone's life where the Word and the Spirit come together. Or we've shared many stories with you over the last couple months, people that have been in a marital relationship and someone cheated. And then the offended party forgives the person who cheated. That's not natural. That's supernatural. So if you begin supernatural, why would you then go back and live natural? Why would you think that you could live the spiritual life on your own? Do you not see that what happens here is you need to live by the Spirit? 
And Paul's saying to them essentially this, you began your Christian life by faith and, and the spirit of God did a work and did the supernatural and now you're trying to live it in the flesh. Now, that doesn't make any sense, so it's foolish. It lacks spiritual discernment for you to do that. So don't do that. Live by the spirit. Now here's the question that's haunted me this week. How? How do you do that? I'm a doer. False Christianity that I slip into naturally is do more Christianity. So I ask myself the question, now what do I do? How do I live by the Spirit? Here's the bad news. There's not a formula. You look at the passage. There's not some methodology that's laid out there. He's telling them to do this. So what do you do? Well, it's not formulaic or methodological. It's relational. You trust. That's the key. That's why he uses the example he uses next. He answers the question. In case the answer is not so obvious from this rhetorical question in verse 5, when he says, did you get the Spirit and do you see miracles happen because you obeyed enough? Like you obeyed enough and then God blessed you with a miracle? No, that's not what happened. By faith, you trusted. And then he uses the example of Abraham. Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Let me ask you a question about Abraham. Did Abraham obey the law? No. The law didn't exist. What Abraham had was promises from God. And he walked by faith in those promises. How could he ever do that? It's the power of the Spirit. See, where you see the Spirit, you also see the Word of God. You see God speak at the very beginning, creation, and the Spirit hovered. What is the Word of God? It's God breathed. That's the word for Spirit. You see the way that the Spirit works in our lives and leading us and guiding us and correcting us and rebuking us and convicting us and doing all the things that it does and comforting us. He does in coherence. He does it in work with the Word of God. And so what is it to be living by the Spirit? It's to be walking according to the promises of God. It's to be trusting God. How foolish of us to then trust in ourselves and do it by our own power when we have the very Word. Abraham had a few promises Think about all the promises we have that Abraham never had. And we talked about promises last week. I talked about walking by faith last week and I bombarded you with promises. And I said, let's get real practical. Let's talk about when the kids won't go to bed at night. Let's talk about when you're fighting with your spouse. Let's talk about when you lose a job. Let's talk about when you have expectations for people you can't meet, when you don't have enough money to pay the bills. How do you walk by faith then? And we talked about promises. We talked about 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. And so our issue in all of our circumstances is not a lack of resources. It might be a lack of faith, but it's not a lack of resources. So what do I do to become a better Christian? <laughs> we talk about Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. He who began a good work in you, he's the one doing the work, will be faithful to complete it. You know how he completes it? Through other people, through his word, through his spirit, through circumstances. Sometimes those circumstances really stink. Romans chapter 8 and verse 18 says that when we get to see his glory, all those things will pale in comparison. They want to be worthy to compare with him. It's a promise. But sometimes we blow it in the circumstances and he promises forgiveness. If we were confess our sin, acknowledge our sin for what it is, that he will be faithful. He is just and he'll forgive us our sins. But what about in these circumstances I feel so alone, no one else understands? You have a high priest that you can go to, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. He sympathizes with you. He understands everything you go through. And we talked about in temptation, that you have no temptation to seize you, but what's common to man. And he's faithful that he'll give you a way out of that. And to walk by faith is to look for the way out of that, to take the way out of that. And there's hundreds and hundreds of promises for us. And today I can bombard you with more promises. Those are just the ones we talked about last week. But what about just the promises that have to do with the Spirit of God? Read Romans chapter 8. It's all about the Spirit of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. None. What an amazing promise. Amen? 
How does it happen? Verse 2. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free. The spirit is what sets me free. From the law of sin and death. See what the law does? It shows us our sinfulness. It points us to the gospel. The law is good. Because it shows us our need for Jesus. And Paul just talked about that in Romans chapter 7. Am I saying the law is bad? No, the law is great. Because if it wasn't for the law, I wouldn't have known of covetousness. And once I saw that, then sin became alive to me. He actually thought he was good enough. And then he saw, but the law leads to sin and death. It shows us our sinfulness and our separation from God, but it's the Spirit of God that gives us life. What about Romans chapter 8, verse 5? Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds, what are you fascinated by? Have their minds set on what the nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. That Jesus Christ and Christ crucified would receive glory in our lives in all circumstances that the gospel will come into each circumstance and transform those circumstances because he's preached to us Christ and Christ crucified. Not Christ and Christ crucified for this area of my life and then now I'll figure out the rest. That's not how God works. He gives us the spirit to live according to the spirit. What does he say in verse 6? More promises in Romans chapter 8. The mind of the sinful man is death, but the mind controlled, so it's supposed to control us. That's why Paul says what he says in Ephesians when he says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't be controlled by some other substance that can control you, but be controlled with, filled with the Spirit of God that will change your judgment, that will change the way you make decisions. And do you know what will happen when you're controlled by the Spirit? It's a life of peace. Verse 7 says this, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Verse 8, those controlled by the, sin, the sinful nature cannot please God. It's not possible. And then go to verse 11. Romans chapter 8 and verse 11 says this, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. What? The spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead is living in you? He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. He gives us life through his spirit who lives in you. But if you don't have the spirit... Guess what? You don't have Christ. That's what he tells us in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. Go back up just, just a little bit there. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. You, however, are not controlled by the spirit, controlled by the sinful nature. If God lives in you and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. We're not talking about varsity Christians here. Do you have the spirit? Because here's the deal. You can do more Christian-type stuff and not have the Spirit. You can go to every Christian event in every town in America and not have the Spirit. You can look like a good Christian by being really good at certain spiritual disciplines, and maybe it's because of your temperament or giftedness, and not be a Christian, not have the Spirit. You can take biblical principles, apply them to your finances and have better finances, have a better family, have better friendships and relationships in every area of your life and not have the spirit of God. That's not Christianity. Biblical principles, a better life. Sure. All that stuff's good. And you know what? We're plagued with that stuff in America. I wonder what Paul would write to us if he were writing to the church in America. You foolish Americans. Who's deceived you into thinking this is Christianity? Where did the spirit go? See, if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit. And you know what the Spirit does? That was verse 11. It gives you life. You know what the Spirit is? It's the very power that raised Jesus from the dead. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than we could ever imagine, how according to his power that's at work where? Within us. 
So you have the spirit of God living in you. The very spirit that has power over death can raise Jesus from the dead is yours. Now let me ask you this question. What's the most foolish thing you can do in your Christian life? Try to live according to your own power when you have the very power of God? Think about it like this. Imagine that you're the president of the United States or that you're the main military commander or whatever title you want to give. Imagine that you've got all authority and all power in our country to go to war with someone else. And we're going to go to war with someone else. And you've got access to the army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines, the Coast Guard, drones, technology, nuclear weapons. You've got all of that at your disposal. But you show up in this other country and you think you're a bad dude or female dude, whatever that word is, dudette. And you challenge them to one-on-one fist fight, each one. You're going to take on the nation. Maybe you're really bad and you want to do a cage match. Come on, you've been watching some ultimate fighting and your head's bigger than your muscles and you think that you got this thing? How dumb would that be? They've got nuclear weapons. You're done. Do you realize that living by the Spirit is a battle? That's why Paul says what he says right before chapter 8 and chapter 7. He says, I don't do what I want to do and then I do the things that I don't want to do. And then I'm back and forth about wanting and doing and not doing and wanting and all this stuff and I've got these desires in me, my flesh, that, I, that makes me want to do things that I don't really even want to do, the spirit. You see, the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. And Jesus himself even says these things. And you're going to trust in the flesh, you're going to trust in the spirit. And there's this battle that takes place for us. And you know what? It's a battle not against flesh and blood. It's a battle against the spirit. That's why Paul says what he says in Ephesians chapter 6, that we do not battle against flesh and blood. Then how dumb is it to fight a battle that's not a flesh and blood battle with flesh and blood skills and strengths and weapons? You're in a spiritual battle. Do you know what weapons you have? The only offensive weapon you have in Ephesians chapter 6 is the word of God. The only thing that you have for you is indwelling spirit. And the spirit and the word come together. The power of the gospel and peace and all those things are good. The breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith. I'm not disregarding those things. But the offensive weapon you have is the word of God. The promises of God that have been given to you and the way that you walk by them is through the spirit. So what's the most foolish thing you could do? Is walk in your flesh. Do it in your own strength. So how do you walk by the Spirit? Trust. The wisest thing you can do today is trust. Let's pray. Father God, we come into your presence. Grateful that you give so many good gifts. That you've given us your word. You've given us your promises. You've given us your Spirit. We believe the promises of your Spirit. God, we come to you And so many of us have lived this life in the flesh. We've done it on our own. We've done it by our own strength. Some of us not Christians and we're living life on our own. Some of us Christians. And and Father God, we come before you. We are sorry that we've trusted you as Savior and then tried to do it on our own. When you gave us so many resources. Father, we come before you right now, even in a moment of contemplation. With everybody here with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Except for me, I'm looking. How many of you here would acknowledge in this moment of contemplation that you try to live the spiritual life in your own strength? That you've done that, or maybe you do that regularly. How many of you raise your hand and say that that's true? Just raise your hand up. Acknowledgement before God. I'm going to pray for you in a moment. Some of you here today, maybe you've been living life in your own strength, and you haven't trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior yet. How many of you here today would say that that's true for you? You've been living life in your own strength and today you need to trust Jesus as your Savior. You haven't done that. Today you need to do that. Would you raise your hand? Did somebody raise your hand already? 
Maybe in Theater 14, you can raise your hand as well or if you're listening online. And what you need to do today to start a relationship with Jesus is acknowledge that. You've already taken the first step. You've acknowledged that. You try to do things on your own. That's called sin in the Bible, and sin separates us from God. What you need to do is you need to apologize to God. Say, I'm sorry that I've done that. And then ask for his forgiveness. Confess that what that's done is it separated you from him. Say, God, will you forgive me? And there's a promise in Scripture that if you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, he rose from the dead, and you confess with your mouth that that's true, that he'll save you from yourself and save you from your sin. And you can do that as you sit there in your seat right now or as you're riding in your car or as you're watching this online. And you just pray a simple prayer that acknowledges your sin before him. And you can do that in your own words, just even praying in your heart right now as you sit there. Say, God, I admit my sin before you. And you can say that however you want and whatever sins you want to mention. And I believe your son Jesus Christ died for those sins and is offering me life. And today I want to receive that life. I'll give you a moment just to pray that prayer. And if you prayed that, will you please acknowledge it to us? Will you please check that on a connection card today? I know I saw people raise their hand. Would you please, we want to pray for you this week. And Father, I pray for those that acknowledge already being followers of yours and many hands went up. And people that say they try to live the spiritual life in their own strength, God, we're sorry. We repent. We stop. We turn from that in whatever way that is. Doing whatever seems right to us. Consumer Christianity, osmosis Christianity, do more Christianity, whatever stuff that's not really even Christianity that we call Christianity, we turn from that and we turn to you and we ask you to fill us with your spirit, control us with your spirit, guide us with your spirit, and God, have us walk according to your promises. Saturate our mind with your promises, with your truth, so that in all circumstances, your spirit brings to mind, brings to memory those things that we've meditated on in your truth, God, that you'd show us how Christ is central in all things that he would be glorified. And we are so sorry when we've made ourselves central. We're so sorry. God, I'm sorry. I'm trying to do it on my own. On behalf of my friends that have done the same thing, we apologize and we come to you, God. And we ask for your grace for another chance to turn back to your spirit and that your spirit would fill us and change us, that we wouldn't quench or grieve the spirit, but that you would fill us and guide us and comfort us and convict us and Allow us to know exactly what decisions you want us to make in the days ahead. We trust you. In Jesus' name.